Shalom. That's the word of the day. I'm sure that's the way uh, my friend, uh, the president of Israel, Bougie Herzog, uh, greeted um, President Biden and the prime minister of Israel. And I'm sure that President Biden responded by saying shalom, because, of course, shalom has three meanings. It means hello. It means goodbye. And it means peace, which I think everybody on the tarmac uh, hopes for and, and prays for in this most divisive of areas of land, namely Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, which now includes the state of uh, Israel, as well as the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and so President Biden, building on the um, Abraham Accords, uh, which were obviously brought about through the work of people like Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz and David Friedman and Mike Pompeo and, of course, President Trump. Uh, President Biden is hoping to build on those uh, accords. And uh, my hope is that he doesn't undercut them because the, the basic, basic benefit of the accords is it send a message to the Palestinians. You got to come to the negotiating table. You can't any longer count on other Arab countries supporting you. They don't support your recalcitrance. They don't support your unwillingness to compromise. They don't support your terrorism. They don't support your implicit support for Iran that endangers the entire Middle East. They're not on your side. They want peace. And peace can come about only if the Palestinians know they're not going to get it through the BDS movement in the United States. They're not going to get it through Noam Chomsky, Norman Finkelstein. They're not going to get it through people on university campuses who are demonizing Israel. They're going to get it only if they sit down with the Israeli government and say, look, we're prepared to make compromises if you are. And the compromises the Palestinians must make is a disarmed Palestinian state. That doesn't mean it can't have guns and, and other weapons uh, by the police force. It means it can't have an air force because nobody trusts uh, the Palestinian terrorists who might get a hold of the air force not to use it against Israel. They, they can't have tanks. They can't have nuclear weapons. Uh, remember when Germany and, and Japan surrendered at the end of the Second World War, they also gave up. Uh, any kind of offensive uh, weapons. It took years and years and years, decades, uh, before anybody would allow those two countries to engage and have the weapons necessary to engage in the kind of aggressive warfare they're engaged in when Germany invaded Poland and then Russia and when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. No, we're, we're not going to let you do that again, said the United States of America. And Israel is saying the same thing. Just remember a little bit of history. I sure hope that President Biden knows this history. You can get it out of my book, The Case for Israel or The Case for Peace. I've written extensively about this problem, but the, the, the history is so important. The history is crystal clear. Great Britain convened what was called the Peel Commission, uh, and the Peel Commission recommended the partition of what was then the mandate into essentially three areas. The first, the largest by far, would become an Arab-Palestinian state called 
Transjordan at the time. Now Jordan, more than 50% Palestinians. Hashemites came in. They had no indigenous connection to the land. They came from tribes in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the king of, uh, of, of, of Jordan has far less connection to Jordan than many Israelis have to, to Israel. Um, uh, but they divided it into three. Transjordan, which became Jordan the largest by far. Then they offered the largest amount of arable land, most of what is today central Israel and the West Bank, to become a Palestinian state. All Israel was offered was a little coastal enclave from Haifa, basically down to Tel Aviv and a little below that, uh, which contained the majority Jewish population, but a small fraction of the arable land in what was left of the mandate after Jordan. Yes, and then Israel got the Negev because nobody wanted the Negev. The Negev is like, you know, the Sinai. Who wanted the Sinai? Uh, it's desert. But Ben-Gurion wanted the Negev because he thought he could cultivate it and, 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 and create orange groves out of uh, desert sand, which he did. And uh, the Negev is now thriving with major universities, major agricultural developments, major... Uh, areas, including probably Israel's nuclear facility is all in the Negev. So it was a brilliant move for Israel to accept the, the Negev in, in, in lieu of more arable land. But the point is that the Peel Commission set out a two-state solution. If the Palestinian Arabs had accepted it, they would today have a very large state. Uh, there would be no refugees. Uh, there would be no Nakba, the, the catastrophe. And hopefully Israelis and Palestinians would be living in peace, maybe even working jointly economically and, and militarily to avoid threats from Iran. But no, the Palestinians said absolutely not. And they engaged in a genocidal war designed not only to destroy the nascent state of Israel, but to drive its population into the sea. That's not me. That's the Palestinian leadership saying drive them into the sea. Make sure there isn't a single Jew citing the Quran. They say, rocks, tell us if a Jew is hiding behind you, rock, and we will slay that Jew. That's in the Quran. And that was the motto. And remember who the leaders of the Palestinians were. The leader was a man named Al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who spent the war years in Berlin with Adolf Hitler, his close friend. Um, he... Uh, Al-Husseini uh, was declared a Nazi war criminal after the war. He helped put together the Serbian and uh, you know, what was former Yugoslavian uh, group of Nazis, uh, which waged war in that part of the, of the world. And then he escaped. Of course, he was wanted. He escaped to Egypt, which gave him asylum, and he was calling the shots. And uh, he testified in front of the Peel Commission even before the war he said essentially in virtually these words, we do not want a Palestinian state. We are not a separate independent people. We are Southern Syria. We're part of the Arab nation. Palestinians aren't a separate people. We want there not to be a Jewish state much more than we want there to be a state for the Arabs that live in the land. We don't even want a Jewish state the size of a postage stamp. 
Now, of course, Ben-Gurion was not looking for a Jewish state. He was looking for the nation state of the Jewish people. He was an atheist, um, cared deeply about the Bible. He read the Torah all the time, but he was a secular person. Uh, he came from a socialist background. He was very left wing. That changed later in life and he became much more amenable to religion. I own, I have in, in my home a letter from Ben-Gurion in his handwriting in Hebrew, translated into English, in which he says, we have to learn how to deal effectively with both the religious and the non-religious among us. The religious should be allowed to do whatever they want, freedom of religion, but they should not be able to tell the non-religious what to do. Essentially the equivalent of our first amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, meaning that government can't tell us who are more secular what to do, but nor shall in any way deprive people of the free exercise of religion. So that's what Ben-Gurion uh, uh, wanted. The Palestinians, on the other hand, didn't want a secular state. They wanted a Sharia state, a state, and they still do. It's in the Constitution that if Palestine becomes a state, it will be governed by Sharia law. And Sharia law prohibits um, Jews from owning property in Jordan, which is kind of half secular, half religious state. It's a crime to sell land to a Jew. And so if there is a Palestinian state on the West Bank, which I hope there will be, not that the Palestinians deserve it. They've turned it down so many times, 37, 38, 47, 48, 67, uh, 90, 2005, 2008, and, and, and currently. It's not that the Palestinians deserve a state. The Kurds deserve a state much more than the Palestinians do. It's that the Israelis deserve for there to be a Palestinian state so that Israel can remain the nation state of the Jewish people, uh, a democratic state, without having to have direct control over, in an occupied area, Palestinians. It would be much better for Israel for there to be a peaceful, non-belligerent, non-terrorist Palestinian state next to Israel, which could have economic ties, political ties, educational ties. Already, Israel treats so many Palestinians in their marvelous hospitals. You know that really second only uh, to the United States, uh, Israel startup nation has and continues to develop more life-saving um, medical technologies than uh, any nation of a comparable size and indeed more than most nations of non-comparable sizes. The peace dividend, if indeed Isaiah's prophecy that the swords will be made into plowshares ever were to come true, you know, Israel's nuclear weapons could be made into nuclear medicine and uh, it could help the world. It continues to help the world. Israel's technology developed largely in self-defense as part of its military advantage over the combined Arab armies, the uh, Iranian army, uh, the other threats to Israel. Israel's military technology has produced tremendous civilian benefits. So let's hope that uh, President Biden does more good than harm. Uh, there are risks here. Uh, President Biden wants to open up uh, an embassy in East Jerusalem for the Palestinians. That's controversial. Um, he doesn't want to put the kind of pressure on the Palestinian leadership that I think, and by the way, that I think Saudi Arabia thinks and the uh, other Arab countries in the Gulf think should be 
placed on the Palestinians. I think that the United States has put enough pressure on Israel over the years. Remember that, you know, the United States was about to destroy the entire Egyptian army after the Egyptian army attacked the United States on Yom Kippur in an unprovoked war, reminiscent more of Pearl Harbor than any other incident in history. And Israel soundly defeated after losing a lot of people, a lot of people, soundly defeated Egypt, surrounded the army, and the United States made them, made them end the surrounding of the army and give the Egyptians a kind of Pyrrhic uh, victories. The United States has put a lot of pressure on Israel over the years, and now the time has come for the United States with the Abraham Accords, with the cooperation of the United Arab Emirates, with the cooperation of Qatar, with the cooperation, hopefully, of Saudi Arabia, and maybe even someday, um, um, I, I said Qatar, I meant Kuwait, even Qatar, which has not made peace with Israel, it does supply money to the Gaza and to Hamas with the approval of Israel, but it's playing both sides against the middle. Maybe it too will be able to make some kind of a peace to, uh, for, for Israel and, and between Israel and the Arab countries. The world would benefit. The area would benefit. The only country that would lose would be Iran. And who's rooting for Iran? Iran is the country that hangs gays, throws dissidents off the roof, punishes people who don't wear the proper headgear, uh, convicts people of blasphemy for saying anything critical of Islam. Is this the kind of country you really want to benefit? Is this the kind of country we can trust to make a deal with? Now, I know that um, President Biden would like to come back to the uh, Iran treaty. I say treaty. It was a treaty, without a doubt. It looks like a treaty. It walks like a treaty. It quacks like a treaty. But President Obama said it's not a treaty. It's an executive agreement. Therefore, I don't need two-thirds approval of the Senate. He couldn't even get a majority approval of the Senate. But he went around the Constitution, which says explicitly that a treaty has to be confirmed by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. And uh, he didn't get a two-thirds vote. He didn't even put it up for a vote. He said it's not a treaty. It is a treaty. And um, it's a hard question whether or not the United States should get back not to the old treaty. We know the old treaty is dead in the water. It should be dead in the water. First of all, it's practically expired at this point. It's run out. And the Iranians are ignoring it completely and are only, you know, a short time away. Differences of opinion between six weeks and six months uh, of crossing a red line and being able to develop nuclear weapons. They already have a delivery system. And the former president has already said, if we develop a nuclear bomb and bomb Tel Aviv, he's called Israel a one bomb state, it could not survive. One bomb will destroy Israel forever. He said, then if Israel retaliates and kills 20 million Muslims by bombing Tehran, that would be worth the trade because it would end Israel and Islam would still survive with us more than a billion people. Is that the kind of country anybody would trust to have nuclear weapons? No. And Israel will not allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons. The question is, will the United States Will the United States join Israel? They have to some degree. They've used a technology to slow down the effort. But Israel has taken the larger role 
in trying to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Will it eventually someday have to engage in probably one of the most difficult, complex military operations in the history of military operations? And that is an attempt to destroy the underground nuclear facilities, which today are only amenable to bunker-busting bombs, bunker-busting bombs, which are not currently in the Israeli arsenal, at least as far as as we know. Obviously, Israel could use tactical nuclear weapons, but they are not going to do that. As a last resort, maybe they should. Um, if the choice is between being destroyed by a nuclear enemy sworn to its destruction or using tactical nuclear weapons in a preventive way to prevent that kind of event, I think reasonable people could disagree about what the right approach might be. But Israel has promised it would not be the first country to introduce nuclear weapons into the Middle East. So let's see what President uh, Biden does. He's going to be in Israel a couple of days. Then he's going to go to Saudi Arabia um, and other places. Um, his goal is right. His goal is clearly peace. His heart's in the right place. Uh, he's a friend of Israel. Um, but um, the hard left within the Democratic Party is already making noise. Um, dozens of Democrats have called for a harder line on Israel, um, with some of them the most extremes. Uh, Presley who was uh, my congresswoman in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, uh, basically doesn't want any support for uh, Israel, and yet, yet uh, Jewish residents of, of, of Cambridge vote for her. Um, uh, Ilan Omer, AOC, they're all virulent, bigoted haters of Israel. Um, they cross the line, often from anti-Zionism to anti-Semitism, and they are a part of the Democratic Party. And if they ever become a majority of the Democratic Party, you can be sure that I will no longer remain a Democrat. I remain a Democrat because I want to help marginalize the extreme left wing of the Democratic Party. I haven't left the Democratic Party, but the left wing of the Democratic Party has left me. And I do not support that wing of the Democratic Party any more than my good conservative friends, centrist conservative friends, support the right, right, right fringe, the Greens and others. Um, I don't mean the Greens as a color. I mean the Greens as a name of a congresswoman uh, on the extreme right of the Republican Party. Uh, we have in common uh, my liberal centrist friends and my conservative centrist friends. I don't have too many left on the liberal side. I have a lot on the conservative side. But uh, my friends in the middle all have the same goal to marginalize the extremists on on the right and the extremists on the left. That's why I voted for Biden, because I thought of him and still think of him as a liberal cent centrist. Am I satisfied with everything he's done? No. Uh, once he leaves the Middle East, I may be even more dissatisfied. But I have ever been satisfied with any president I voted for? No, I never have. As I've said before on the show, the only president I ever regret having voted for is Barack Obama in his second term. I now think that George Romney would have been, uh, Mitt Romney, I remember his dad, George, uh, Mitt Romney would have been a far better president than Barack Obama in his second term. Barack Obama's first term was quite good. And, you know, you can't complain, I can't complain about, about health care and some of the other accomplishments, but his foreign policy was abysmal. It weakened America. It encouraged our enemies. Um, 
probably it bears some degree of responsibility for uh, many of the problems in, in the world today. I think uh, Barack Obama will go down in history as one of the worst foreign policy presidents in the history of this country. Um, and yet I voted for him the first time and continue to vote for most Democratic candidates. I could never vote for a Democratic candidate from the hard left. So shalom again to uh, President Biden, uh, this time in the third sense of that term, peace. Uh, and I hope that his visit there will contribute to peace. I hope it will strengthen ties between the United States and Israel. I hope it will strengthen the commitment of America to bring the Palestinians to the bargaining uh, table. And I hope the end result would be that I can praise President Biden with the same praise that I've given the Trump administration. Trump administration did very good things on the Middle East, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, uh, recognizing the annexation of the Golan Heights, creating the Abraham Accords. Those were major accomplishments, far better than anything Barack Obama ever did. This coming from a liberal Democrat. Let's hope that President Biden can do the same thing and that in the days and weeks to come, I will praise President Biden for his contribution to peace in the Middle East, as I've praised the Trump administration for its contribution to peace in the Middle East. Everybody's going to hate me for saying that. I already got letters saying I'm always on the fence I'm always trying to be one thing to one side. No, I'm principled. I'm principled. And uh, having said that, as you know, this is my book, The Price of Principle. It's climbing quickly in the bestseller lists. And uh, I think many of you would really enjoy it because it tells the story of what happened to me because I stuck with principle, because I defended President uh, Trump uh, on the floor of the Senate and by answering questions. It explains what happened to me when the Chilmark Library, a library, won't allow me to speak there. And, and I spoke to the, the head of it today, and sh she has two excuses. Number one, I'm too popular. The crowds will be too big. I'm too popular. And I guess the other implicit one is I'm too unpopular. But uh, the library, the public library, which gets public funding, won't allow me to speak. They allowed me to speak every, not allowed me, insisted, demanded that I speak every year for many, many, many years until I appeared on the floor of the Senate on behalf of President uh, Trump. No more, no more. You can't come to the Chilmark Library. You can't come to the Chilmark Community Center. You can't come to the Martha's Vineyard Hebrew Center if you've done anything to support the Constitution on behalf of President Trump. Read about it in The Price of Principle. You can get it on Amazon and other sources. So let's turn now to some questions. I'm a libertarian, neither Republican or Democrat, but never did I think I would be on the same side as Dershowitz, but as long as he speaks the truth, I'm on his side. All right, that's positive. Put your head out of your ASS. Biden did not win. Why don't you look at the cheating allegations before you make such ignorant statements? I'll say it again. Biden won the election. He won it fair and square. A vast majority of Americans preferred him to President Trump, and he won the Electoral College fair and square. Were there problems in the election? Yes, Pennsylvania should not have allowed people to vote as late as they did because under the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, 
Only the legislature can make that decision, not the governor. But Biden won the election fair and square. I have seen 2,000 mules. I think it makes a good case for the future. It makes a good case against eliminating polls and security and having all or so many ballots being done by mail. It makes some very good cases. And I actually like the, the director and, and producer. I, I, I helped him get a pardon from, from President Trump. President Trump asked me what I thought of a pardon for him, and I enthusiastically supported it. But I'm not convinced that 2,000 mules or any other data that I've seen uh, should turn around the election or that President Trump um, is the legitimate president of the United States. No, I, I, don't, I don't buy that. Um, then what I told you about before, Dersh likes riding the middle of the fence, which makes him unbelievable in a lot of what he says. See a Dersh like people who don't try to appease the crowd. I have to tell you, that's the last thing I ever try to do is appease the crowd. Um, my, my wife wishes I appease the crowd a little bit more, particularly the crowd uh, in, in, in Chilmark or uh, on Martha's Vineyard or among our friends. No, I'm not an appeaser. I'm a principled person. I will always state what I think are the principal reasons for uh, what I believe, what, whatever the crowd thinks. Here's another one. Uh, you know, I, I constantly compare what's going on on the January 6th committee to McCarthyism, but I got a bunch of letters uh, in this most recent stack of emails lionizing and supporting Joe McCarthy. McCarthy was a hero. He was spot on, and merry Americans knew he was. But the KGB has been operating and infiltrating and subversion operation for, for 20 years by the time McCarthy started going after them. By the way, I, I don't disagree with the fact that the KGB was trying to infiltrate America um, and, and, and may have succeeded in, in some places. But the tactics, the tactics used by McCarthy, I don't judge things by the ends. I just them. I judge them largely by the means, the means used by the House and American Activities Committee, which was in the House, and the comparable Senate committees, and Joe McCarthy was in violation of the Constitution, violation of the rule of law, and violation of, of due process. So I, I don't agree with the attempt to lionize McCarthy. McCarthyism is one of the worst episodes in modern American history. I know I was there. I was president of the student government at Brooklyn College, when Brooklyn College was called the Little Red Schoolhouse because it had a number, a small number, a very small number of communists on the faculty and among the students. And uh, they uh, elected a president of the, of, not of the student body, of the faculty, the president of the university, who was known for his anti-communism. <laughs> I fought with him all the time. He tried to ban communist speakers. He tried to fire communists uh, who were teaching. And I, I fought against him and that even though I'm a, I was and still am a virulent anti-communist. Anti All right. Anyone with half a wit who was not compromised and in camp with the enemy would comprehend that McCarthy was right. And if anything, he underestimated the threat. But his enemies used ad hominems to undermine this man and was correct all of the time. Now, all right, remember he talks about ad hominem now for his last sentence. Yes, Jews can be fascists too. Right, Derpowitz, ask your buddy Soros how that works. I don't like Soros. I've never liked Soros. Just because he's Jewish on his parents' side um, uh, does not mean I have to like him. Um, uh, some of my 
greatest enemies are Jews, as are some of my best friends. I don't like or dislike people based on religion, race, ethnicity, gender, or any of those factors. I don't like McCarthy because of what he did. Uh, say what you want about Roy Cohen. He could fix anything. Uh, is that intended to be a compliment? I mean, I knew Roy Cohen. I met him through Klaus von Bülow. When I was representing Klaus von Bülow in his criminal case, you remember attempted murder of his wife by injecting her with insulin, of which he was acquitted, and, and there was no crime. In fact, the death was purely accidental. But when I was representing Klaus von Bülow, his daughter, who had been cut off from the wealth of the mother, was represented by Roy Cohen. So I had to meet Roy Cohen, and we had to cooperate because we were representing the same family. Um, I did not see him fix anything, and I would not, of course, have cooperated in any fixing, but he was known. Um, he did tell me at one point that uh, the most important books in his library are not law books. They are two books, his address book and his checkbook. And he got big fees because of his address book. He was really able to call people and people in government you can call. That's called lobbying. You have to register, but it's part of our First Amendment right. Would he call judges as well? Well, I'll tell you one story about him. Um, a friend of mine um, who was a college classmate was uh, nominated to be a federal district court judge and Roy Cohn opposed him on the ground that he was too liberal. In fact, my friend was fairly conservative, but he was too liberal for some. And so Roy Cohn opposed the nomination. I called him and I said, Roy, this guy is conservative and he'd be a great judge and you should really support him. Here's what he said to me, Alan, I couldn't give a damn what kind of a judge he is, conservative or liberal. If you want him, you can have him. That was his attitude. He then called me a few days later and said, sorry, Alan, I couldn't do it. I made the calls, but it was too late. The decision had already been made to withdraw the nomination. But his attitude was loyalty, loyalty to me because I had worked with him on the Von Bülow case. So, you know, the letter writer might be right. Uh, he could fix anything. Uh, never hire me to fix anything. I'm not a fixer. I'm an arguer. If you want to retain me, most of my cases are now pro bono. I do a tremendous amount of work for an organization called Olive, which represents imprisoned people all over the world, Jews and non-Jews. Um, hire me because I'm a good lawyer. Hire me because I write good briefs. Hire me because I argue cases well, but don't ever ask me to fix a case because I won't do it and I'll fire you as a client. So that's my attitude. Let me end as I started. Shalom. Peace. Hello. I hope, I hope, I hope that the visit by President Biden to Israel produces shalom.